I think in many ways people are weary of this because it is hard to teach high flex the first time. You basically have to prepare for your face-to-face -face and online class at the same time. And that's very different. Think about preparing, for example, for a lab and a lecture at the same time. And also there's pedagogies having to do with trying to balance the two different audiences at the same time. Yet, I think this is a baseline. And I think this is really, for people who don't like it, it's nevertheless seeped into everyday life. I've seen this in meetings, I've seen this in conferences, and I've seen this, of course, in classes. So I want us to keep an eye on this. The Digital to Learn podcast is dedicated to exploring both what's new and what's good in the use of technology in teaching and learning. Our mission is to have the best minds sitting in front of our microphones, sharing evidence-based strategies for digital teaching and learning. Digital to Learn is brought to you by the Center for Learning and Innovation at Indiana Wesleyan University. Thank you for joining us. And now, the Digital to Learn podcast. Welcome to the Digital to Learn podcast. I'm your host for the day, Tiffany Snyder. Back in June, the Digital to Learn team had the opportunity to bring three incredible guests in the digital teaching and learning space together for a live webinar event. At that time, we had the idea to take the webinar audio and turn it into some really great podcast episodes. So last week, we had the first one where we took a webinar and translated it into a podcast episode, and that was for our very own Brian Alexander. I'm saying our very own, not because Brian works with us directly but because we've kind of claimed him as one of our absolute favorite guests, and he's a returning one. So Brian joined the show last week, and if you didn't have a chance to catch that episode, please go back and take a listen now. But if you've already heard it, we're going to continue the conversation, and that's going to be on the future of higher education. Brian is such an extraordinary guest, and we're excited that you're here to hear from Brian again. Without further ado, let's jump right back in. Part two with Brian Alexander. Now, all of that is economics, demographics, and social issues. Now I want to turn around and talk about technology and technology and education. And we could talk for hours and hours about all the different technologies here. What I want to hit are two real technological movements that potentially have the impact to not only change your lives, but to just massively redesign computing in higher education. So the first I want to draw your attention to is what some call XR, extended reality. So that refers to a mashup of two technologies, augmented reality and virtual reality. Virtual reality, as most of you know, is just being able to visualize uh, some form of representation of the world or something else through lenses or through glasses or through a screen. Augmented reality, as at least some of you know and all you've experienced, is the reverse, is taking the world of data and physically pinning it to the world. So you think, for example, about using Google Maps as you drive or walk around and how that maps onto where you're physically standing or driving. You can think about tools like DoorDash or Yelp, which focus on your local immediate environment or tools like Uber. Well, XR or extended reality combines these two so that you have all that visualization packed into one spot. Now, what you're looking at here is a different world. What you're seeing is a protein molecule, and you're seeing it through the eyes of a scientist at Worcester Polytech. And he's looking through the lenses of a Microsoft tool called HoloLens. And you can see this protein molecule, and I really can't do it justice with a single photo, and even video is not quite impressive enough. What he's built is a model that you can examine in all kinds of ways. You can spin it around with your hand, you can zoom in, you can zoom out, you can change the visualization style 
So here right now, you see little thin lines and balls. You can switch to other ones, which look more like sticks. If you look in the right edge of the screen, you can see that he's pulled up information about individual locations on this molecule structure. You can also bring up web pages. You can bring up tons of content. And he interacts with this entirely with his voice and one hand. So he can spin this around with his fingers. He can pinch and zoom in and zoom out. And he can also speak to it. Because the guy is a complete nerd, he imitates Star Trek and begins every sentence with computer. But he can do all of that together. And he's doing this on his desk. He can walk down the hall and keep seeing it as he goes. He can walk down the city streets of Worcester and keep engaging with this while seeing the world beyond it as well. Think about how far this could go. Imagine doing email in an interface like this or updating Facebook or editing video or editing photographs, or uploading content to a learning management system. It's possible that this will be a niche. It will just be one tool, like say cell phones or tablets. It's possible it may grow still further and really encompass a great deal of our computing experience. Think about what a huge overhaul that would be just in your life of learning a new technology, but also think about the support necessary. Right now, tools like HoloLens work through a light headset that you put on top of your head, hence the name. But we have other ways of doing this with spectacles, and it's possible to basically see the entire internet through a pair of glasses that we interact with. So this is one huge world I'd like you to think about. In the chat, Peggy Mackey says, all of your information is given to our pedagogies, how we position students to learn, and how we assess to identify obstacles they face as they learn, so we can help them immediately. Indeed, that's a great statement, Peggy, of how we can use data in pedagogy and support. In the chat, Michael Jones goes on to say, math equations, historical overlays of modern places, museum tours in your living room. Absolutely, absolutely. Think of museum tours in the middle of your campus to museums that you can't get to. Imagine being in a classroom and visualizing something enormous like a hurricane or the solar system or something incredibly small like the world of quanta. If you're able to zoom in and out, I mean, the visualization possibilities for this are really, really powerful and rich. At the same time, there's another issue, which is social. There's the idea that this kind of technology makes other people feel more present to you. Uh, so you may be more concerned with other people. In fact, some call it virtual reality an empathy machine. That might be too far, but that's one of the reasons people are talking about it. Think about teaching students collaboration and workforce collaboration using this tool. And this is just one technological trend. Here's the other one. I want to think about automation. And by automation, I mean robotics and I mean software, AI and algorithms. And the fact is that automation has taken off in the past 10 years. We had some doldrums for about 20 years, but now through a variety of breakthroughs, especially machine learning and deep learning, we've had incredible advances. But the one I'd like to say about automation is I want to give you three possibilities for where this may take the world. And then I want to show how that can take higher education in some different ways. When we think about automation, it can play out in a way that's familiar to us from the past two centuries. And that is, Automation will render some jobs obsolete, but create a lot more new ones. So think, for example, about how the car outmoded horses and buggies. Well, we still have horses, you know, just not many compared to what we used to. We don't use them for transportation almost at all. But we built a globe-spanning industry that employed a ton more people and grew a huge amount of wealth. Well, it's possible that this is going to happen with automation, that we're going to lose jobs, say, in truck driving, in frontline retail, but we're going to grow new jobs in artificial intelligence consulting, in robot managing, and that 
that's going to change the world and it's going to grow the economy. Second possibility is the opposite, that these will actually outmode and surrender obsolete a lot of functions and jobs, and we're not going to replace them. I'm going to fudge the numbers here a bit, but the week that Kodak business, they laid off something like 40,000 people in upstate New York. That week, Instagram employed about 150. The fact is that except for assembling some hardware, computing doesn't employ a lot of people. It really employs very few people. Uh, it has a lot of money, a lot of cloud, a lot of influence, and of course, a lot of the world participates in it as consumers and users, but it really only employs a few people. So it may be that what we see is widespread underemployment and unemployment. Imagine, for example, unemployment rates in the teens or the 20s. Imagine hourly or weekly work schedules dropping from 40 plus down to 35 or 30 or 20. And of course, you know, think about all the policy responses to this. People trying to protect certain industries when they're outmoded economically. People coming up with schemes like expanded unemployment or perhaps universal basic income or perhaps ways of trying to manage that shift in employment by mandating certain hours. A third possibility is that we will work together humans and machines, that automation will play a greater and greater role in everything we do. So think, for example, about pilots today, air pilots for commercial air. A lot of their job is actually automated. Some of that referred to their experience as the glass cage. And a lot of that is automated in ways that are great, that just really aren't demeaning to the intelligence and skills of pilots. And the pilots can really be especially useful for a few hard moments, take off and landing and dealing with crises. In fact, Sweden has been experimenting with completely drone-operated cargo planes, not just small drones, but full cargo planes that are automated. Well, think about having humans in that loop for that one spot. Pilots are already kind of avatar of the future in that way. Think about all kinds of jobs where you're going to have to work with text miners, with hands-on robots, with huge amounts of data being wrangled by AI. So if that's the case, we have to look for what kind of changes that means for the workforce. Okay, three different futures. What does it mean for you in the higher ed? Well, if the first one happens, if we have an economic boom through the creation of new industries, higher ed should play a role in that. That means we're now, among other things, have to teach people how to be in these different fields. So we'll have to massively scale up how we teach automation. And if the second one happens, if the widespread underemployment future occurs, then we have to think about what jobs we're preparing students for. Are we preparing them for unemployment? Now, I want to just add a couple of more details from the recent past, and then I want to hit a major topic, and then I'd love to hear some more of your questions and thoughts. But first, I promise Bart would answer his question. Bart says that universities in 1910 were primarily designed to serve elites and leaders. This got supplemented and complemented by a massive influx of more career-oriented middle-class students during the Great Compression period. True. A big question for me is if these two can continue to coexist in a single institution, or if universities and vocational schools will separate out like oil and water. What do you think? Fantastic question, Bart. I love the way you think. Right now, we've got the coexistence happening. And it's happening in a specific way that most people don't talk about. Remember I mentioned published tuition figures going up? And you know, right now, the most expensive universities, tuition, room, board, and fees costing somewhere in the 80000 range. Well, the fact is that most institutions actually discount tuition. The average amount people pay is something closer to 45% of that amount. So if you go to one of these expensive colleges, it costs 80,000 a year. The average student is paying something more like 38,000 a year. 
still expensive, but a very, very different kind of expense. The way this works is that the students who are the wealthiest tend to pay the full freight. The students who are poorer tend to be the ones who don't. There are other versions of this, but that's the simple picture I want to make sure I get out there. So we have the elites and leaders who in many ways are paying for everybody else. There's an interesting question how sustainable that is culturally and politically. But we're also starting to see the separation out by oil and water. We can find some schools like this. Some of the liberal arts colleges that I've worked with have something like two to four percent of students who are Pell eligible. Meanwhile, we have community colleges, which is you know the most preponderant sector in higher ed, you know, educating mostly the poor and working class. We may see that separation occur as well. I would look for that tension very closely. And Bart, it's a great one to mention. Uh, another question that Frank Ponce mentions, the head of Miro, oh, great tool, says that now in 2022, hybrid work is here to stay. Frank, let me circle back to hybrid because I yeah. need to set that up for just a second here. I've got a lot of answers to that, but I want to make sure that we set that up. It's a good question. It's a good question. So over the past couple of years, we've obviously been living with the COVID-19 pandemic, global pandemic, which has done terrible things to the world. We passed 6 million dead 1 million plus in the United States already. And in the United States, well, I feel a little a little weird connection to this. In my most recent book, Academia Next, which just came out in paperback, I have an early chapter where I try and get people to imagine different futures for higher ed. I mentioned this one. Imagine a future academy after a major pandemic has struck the world. How would that change higher education? Uh, I wrote this in 2017, 2018. This came out 2019, 2020. And no one paid attention to this paragraph until... About two years ago, and ever since then, people have been asking me questions like, what dark forces are you in league with, Alexander? Or what did you know? The, the fact is, people in the futures field, in the forecasting field, we've been forecasting pandemics since 1990. We just haven't been good at convincing enough people to act about it, I'm afraid. A couple of quick notes. At the same time, in the United States and elsewhere, we've experienced a huge social movement of anti-racism, which some call the Great Awakening or the Great Awokening. But the fact is that the whole country has been rethinking its troubled history, its terrible past, with anti-Black racism in particular, and also thinking about the present, how to redesign society to really end racism. And this, of course, has been playing out in higher education, everything from curricular design to supporting minoritized students to supporting minority serving institutions like historically black colleges and universities to how we think about tenure promotion and review, as well as to things like renaming buildings. There's a lot going on with this as well. We could talk about these double developments at great length. I'm happy to in the chat. But the key thing I want you to hit right now is that Higher education met the past two years with not just suffering, but also a great deal of creativity at the institutional level. I came up with four scenarios by which higher education would respond. Some of my colleagues, Eddie Maloney and Josh Kim, came up with 15 scenarios. These are not enough. We experimented with online classes, hybrid classes, mixed classes. We experienced all kinds of ways of teaching online, all kinds of pedagogies. We shifted time schedules. We shifted to low-density classes and a lot more. And we're still going to see more and more echoes of this going on. Hybrid, and this, Frank, is where we come to your question. High flex classes, which Brian Beatty came up with as a term before the pandemic, suddenly loomed large. And Brian explains it this way. These are classes where any participant, student, faculty, support member, can decide for any given meeting if they're going to be there in person or online. 
We know how to offer these. I recommend this book. This is a free online book, which goes into great detail. I've taught this way actually since the 1990s. I think in many ways people are weary of this because it is hard to teach high flex for the first time. You basically have to prepare for your face-to-face -face and online class at the same time. And that's very different. Think about preparing, for example, for a lab and a lecture at the same time. And also there's pedagogies having to do with trying to balance the two different audiences at the same time. Yet, I think this is a baseline. And I think this is really, for people who don't like it, it's nevertheless seeped into everyday life. I've seen this in meetings, I've seen this in conferences, and I've seen this, of course, in classes. So I want us to keep an eye on this. I mean this in terms of class meetings, but the principle, this kind of hybrid, high flex principle of work as a whole, do you need to be at your office 40 hours a week? Do you need to be the shop floor 40 hours a week? It looks like we're doing something a little different where hybridity is a kind of baseline point. We still have all face-to-face -face events. We still have entirely online events. But right between them, we have this blended mix. And I think, Frank, that we have to do this by learning carefully from the lessons of the past two years. We have to learn from what our students are saying. And we have to look at scholarly resources like this one from Brian Beatty. I'd be happy to say more about this, Frank, too, when we come back to it. That's a really good question. Gary Wilkinson uh, adds another question. It seems that large universities and the rich ones, such as the Ivy League, have the resources to invest in new educational technologies. How can the others successfully compete? Gary, what a great question. Thank you for asking. It's, it's an old problem, I'm afraid. We've been dealing with since the 1980s. And there are a lot of solutions which I think still work. One is turning to open source software, open content, open standards to the extent that we can. Those aren't free because they do involve human time costs, but they can really save a lot of money if they're done right. A second is by collaboration and sharing resources across institutions. We know there are a lot of ways that that can save funding, everything from you know sharing disaster management plans to backend support to tools like LOC, which back up of campus data. And a third, I really, really think, is that we have a body of practice by how we assess new technologies and how we experiment with them, how we figure out how to take them from pilot to program. I think we need to rely on those and learn carefully from everybody else. Right now, there's a major dislike of social media, but I think we have all kinds of digital ways that we can learn from each other. And when one campus out of 30 goes ahead and chooses a new technology, we can all learn greatly from it. Gary, I'm happy to say more about that, but I think that's a terrific question. So let me add another trend, another huge one. And this is the one that I kind of want to leave you with. This is the biggest trend. This has to do with climate change. What you're looking at in this shot is a weather station near Cape Cod. And this is one that the American Weather Service just abandoned. You can see the Atlantic Ocean right next to it. And sea level rise means they're not going to try and harden this against sea level. They're just going to give up on it. Really, really quickly, let me hit the many ways this is going to impact us. First, we need to think about the physical campus plant. Everything, starting with buildings, to how we can protect the physical plant against threats. And the threats can be water. They can also be uh, sand or dust coming from desertification or increasing temperature, which changes flora and fauna, or brings new diseases or threatens our water supplies. So to think about our buildings and to the extent that they play a role in this, do our buildings actually emit? Do we source it locally? Most campuses don't. Uh, we often also outsource it. And can we change that sourcing so that we are using renewables instead? Do we change our transportation so that we perhaps penalize, discourage, or just bar 
fossil fuel burning cars and buses? Do we change the food we offer in order to reduce the amount of methane produced? And the physical campuses that are in danger, like that weather station, actually plan to up stakes and move somewhere else. You know, taking a look at the U.S. and North America as a whole after climate change, this is one moderately severe projection to 2100. And you can just look at how the ocean advances along the East Coast, again, where all kinds of universities and colleges are. Look at how Florida disappears. Look at the huge inland sea north of New Orleans, which also disappears. Look at the inland sea within San Francisco, or how Baja California, the Sea of Cortez advances. That's just looking at a second challenge to think about is how our research changes. Which fields will address the climate crisis and will they expand? As will they be supported by state governments, by foundation, by federal governments, by private donors, by campuses? And we know that from the research that's out there, every field has already started to research the climate crisis, not just physics and chemistry and earth science, of course they have, but also sociology, also history, also literature, also psychology. So which of those fields are going to grow as they grapple with this and which will contract? Which new domains and new ways of knowing will there be? There's already eco-criticism, for example, in literature. And how will we deal with political challenges about such research? And then how do we support the physical nature of research. Think about the life sciences researchers whose materials are going to change and mutate. Think about archaeologists, anthropologists who have to research physical sites that are in danger. And then again, how do we support people through political pressures? What happens to our travel? Right, right now, I'm not on campus right now. I'm not at IWU. I'm speaking to you electronically. Is this one mode for the future? Should we all fly and travel less? There's a big push for that because we know that planes emit a ton of carbon dioxide, and we're not really seeing in early days any kind of replacement for that. So should we instead travel by train, travel by bus, or not travel at all? Uh, that's a very contested issue. A lot of academics see this travel as a benefit, and also especially for early career academics. Further, our teaching, do we shift pedagogies towards ones that are more suited towards this topic, towards inquiry-based learning, project-based learning, simulations and gaming? And then what do we do about conflicts on campus? I mean, it may be the climate crisis will make the 1960s look like a walk in the park. When we see student protests like this, what happens, for example, if we have students who demand to fire a professor of petroleum engineering, accusing that person of crimes against humanity? What happens if we have student movements against investment in fossil fuel companies? What is when the students demand more? And by students, I mean students plus faculty and staff. I mean, we may have a lot of unrest on our campuses. What happens to our role in the world? Do we actually reach out as public intellectuals? Do we try to lead mitigation efforts beyond our campuses? Do we support climate migrants? I mean, it's possible that we will see tens of millions of climate migrants moving across the world. Do we offer to physically host them? Do we offer to teach them online? And do we ally with other universities to try to cope and engage with this crisis? So I wanna pause there because I wanna hear more of your questions. I've got a couple of other points to mention, but let me just right now stop throwing slides at you. Ruben Rubio uh, says, in the 2010s, when I taught a teacher prep course, and I intentionally designed it so two-thirds of the course from all face-to-face, -face, and one-third meant wholly online. The point was to start to prepare candidates for a future where they might do more online teaching. The curriculum content of the two parts, of course, did not overlap. Fascinating, Ruben. Fascinating. You were ahead of the curve. Tracy Hines asks, what advice would you give to new higher education teachers in regards to skills needed to be successful and sustained in higher ed until retirement age? Oh, Tracy, what a fantastic question. I would think about 
HyFlex as a kind of goal to shoot for, uh, so that you are able to teach people online and in person and a mix of that. That's a lot of work, I know. Uh, but like I said before, we have practices, we have best practices, we know how to support that. A second is to hone your collaboration skills. I, I don't just mean on campus, but throughout the world. So use whatever form of technology you like, be it Twitter, LinkedIn, TikTok, if you want to use YouTube. So you could follow and learn from as many other people as possible because teachers tend to be outgoing. We tend to share what we do and we can learn from each other like mad. And a third is to try to have a futures consciousness in your work, to think that the future will be different than the present. I know that sounds obvious, but it's actually very hard to do in practice because our institutions are great at repeating the present and repeating recent history. Ah, she's in social work. So to think about people who work in social work professionally, people who are scholars and researchers and teachers in that field, how many of them can share, short of, you know, uh, privacy laws, so much about their practice and learning. What a great field for that kind of interinstitutional practice. But having that futures consciousness is a way of getting us to think ahead to how things can change. So, you know, Tracy, thinking about working with homeless people, how homelessness changes with, among other things, technological and policy shifts. When I was speaking before about the international higher ed versus the local higher ed, obviously that impacts social work in all kinds of ways. So those are a couple of bits of advice. What other questions do you all have before Tiffany boots me off of the recording? Frank Ponce has another good question. Hello, Frank. University of the Future will concurrently offer all programs and all modalities to all student types in a variety of pacing schedules all the time. The distinction between traditional versus non-traditional students is rapidly vanishing. What will that mean for IWU's future? A couple of things. Now, I don't know your university as well as you do, of course. So I'm going to speak a bit generically in response. One is what Frank just described is daunting institutionally, in terms of infrastructure, in terms of human support to do. So you have to figure out strategically how to offer all of this. And that may be very, very challenging. That may involve a process to enterprise level sequence. It may involve focusing on individual programs. It may involve contracting and cutting some programs in order to offer all of these. It means, as I was just telling Tracy, changing faculty and how, and not just faculty, staff as well, how to operate in our work. Another is to think about how we are still facing so many financial challenges in trying to do all this work. So again, this comes back to the question of how do you do all this technology work if you're not an Ivy League institution? We have to try and be as creative as we can with budgetary work, which may again mean cuts and a lot of pain. I think Frank's vision is a great one. It's very forward looking. I would also add one more point to it that that looks out to perhaps new audiences. It may be that you want to teach more people in Central Africa or around the world as a whole. Gary Reinke says, I find what I did overseas with Ford Motor Company leads to great interest in the course as students like to know how people do the same things in other countries. Absolutely. A lot of interest in all of that. What aspects of the creativity the higher ed show during COVID might remain or grow in the next 10 years? i.e. the idea of more use of Zoom and course flexibility. Terrific question, Ruben. And this is a moment of struggle right now where a lot of people, for good reasons and bad, want to snap back to fall 2019. You know, we want a familiar schedule. We don't have to wear masks. We don't have to teach in Zoom if we don't want to. And there's a lot of feeling for that. But at the same time, we've learned a lot and we've developed a lot. Uh, Beloit College came up with this interesting method of redesigning their schedule of their semesters. They cut the length down from 15 or 16 weeks down to seven so they can be more flexible. Will they keep doing this? So far, it works for them. 
what I was describing before to Tracy about trying to do high flex well. I hope we have that and we can continue to practice that and learn how to do that better and better because teachers always do that. We always try out new things to see how they work. But we have to support that kind of innovation. We have to really make sure that we recognize that innovation, those practices, and that we help people when the practice might fail temporarily and they have to try again. I would also look to changes in the physical plan of campuses before talking about climate change. Thinking about, for example, how we redesign buildings after COVID. Do we have more doors and more windows, as well as bigger doors and bigger windows for ventilation purposes? Do we have more big rooms, as well as more really tiny ones, again, for quarantine and for low density purposes? Do we have more outdoor facing buildings? You know, or standalone building or more use of temporary structures like tents or open air structures like gazebos. One example I saw of this was in restaurant design, where a bunch of restaurants were having their dining room shrink and overhaul and their pickup service expanding. I saw one design which actually ended the dining room and doubled the two or three lanes, the you know drive-through lane. So think about how this might play out for, say, academic buildings, uh, this might play out for libraries. So I think, Ruben, we may see the physical plant change as well. Susan asks about delivering internationally. Uh, Susan, that's a whole world, a whole bunch of stuff going on with that. And we have a lot of practice for that now already. I mean, the teaching more and more Students online internationally really took off starting around 2000. So, and a lot of countries are doing this in interesting and different ways. And there's a whole bunch, I mean, there's books on this, a lot to look at. But I, in some ways, Susan, I don't think it's qualitatively, structurally different for figuring out how to teach students in general. You're trying to listen to where they are, how to learn about them, both qualitatively and quantitatively, uh, and then how to shift your capacity to be able to deliver learning to them. Well, thank you so much. And I know there's folks already saying thank you in the chat, but I'll kind of wrap it up too, since we're in this Zoom webinar format and you can't see their friendly faces. We are so thankful to have you here. We know that it's a big deal. You're very humble to say that I'm setting you up, but I feel on behalf of the group that you do deserve to be set up. So uh, can you share briefly how we can follow you? I know you have an e-newsletter that some of our folks subscribe to. Can you tell us how we can hear more from you? Sure. Thank you. You can go to my blog, which has a big post coming up today, actually, just brianalexander.org. You can follow me on Twitter, where I'm Brian Alexander, all one word. We have a monthly trends analysis called the Future Trends and Technology Education Report. That's at ftte.us. And you can take a look at our weekly video conference discussion, where we don't have a host as wonderful as Tiffany, but we try and do our best, <laughs> called the Future Trends Forum. And you can find that from my blog. I'd be glad to see any of you at any of those venues. Thank you. And on our own website, digitaltolearn.com, we're going to have all the different resources that Brian referred to, as well as his contact information linked there. So please check out that website. We have two more days of this webinar series, and I believe one of our presenters is with us today, Peggy Mackey. We also have John Orlando, so be sure to tune into those webinars the next two days. Uh, if you're watching this later on, be sure to catch those recordings. And catch our podcast. That's how it all began, right? The Digital to Learn podcast, which is on your favorite podcast provider. You know what your favorite podcast provider is. If you've got one, it's there. So be sure to also follow us on Twitter at digital to learn LinkedIn at digital to learn and we will see you again soon. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for joining us on digital to learn If you enjoyed this podcast, there are three things we ask you to do. One, come back and join us again. Two, tell your friends about us. And three, give us a positive ranking on your favorite podcast platform. 
Digital to Learn is brought to you by the Center for Learning and Innovation at Indiana Wesleyan University. Embrace the future. Always keep learning.